0: So here we are, approaching Christmas, and I think what I wanted to do first thing this morning was just go on the record and say, I love Jesus. I love everything about him. And the more that I get to know about Jesus, the more I love him. And it's important to say, I think, you know, just say it out loud. I remember as a kid, growing up Catholic, you know, very small child, I remember loving Jesus, but I remember loving the baby Jesus. That was much easier for me to grasp onto. The the big guy bleeding hanging on the cross over the altar, that was difficult for me. I couldn't get the connection. It always felt distant. He was up there far away, but the baby Jesus was right here. And I knew all the stories. You know, I knew all the reasons that I was supposed to love the man bleeding on the cross. But it seemed distant. It seemed disconnected. It wasn't something that I could really get my hands around. But I loved Jesus back then. I remember that. And then I got older. I got busier. And it went away. I fell out of love. And I forgot about Jesus. And then I got older still. And a whole series of events that brought me to my knees and brought my life to a a screeching halt. And then I really wanted to love Jesus again. Right? But the problem was, that I was desperate to get something. I was desperate for the hurting to stop. I was desperate for Jesus to save me. And that got in the way of me just loving Him, of me just knowing Him. And as I had circled back around to church attendance again, I was trying to connect with Jesus through the church, through the doctrine, through the theology, through the Bible study. And that got in the way too. It wasn't until the desperation started to ease. It wasn't until I finally found the strength to step outside of the strict church teachings and the strict church doctrine. In other words, (laughs) it wasn't until I wasn't looking for something anymore and I wasn't trying to see something through a particular viewpoint but I suddenly found Jesus. There he was, hiding in plain sight, there all the time, but I kept missing him. And then I was able to fall in love again. The question I ask myself sometimes, maybe you've asked it yourselves as well, how do I know that I love Jesus? I mean, how do I really know? Because I just said so? you know i say a lot of things we all say a lot of things do we mean them all do we even know what it is that we're saying when we say it you know is it because i prayed so i said the sinner's prayer i said all the prayers that i needed to pray you know is it because i did those things that i know that i love jesus is it because i came a pastor that would seem obvious but being a pastor is so conflicted there are so many reasons that people go into ministry that have nothing to do with anything that we're talking about. Is it because I studied the Bible and studied it really, really hard? It's not that. Is it because I suffered loss in ministry? Well, people suffer loss all the time. That isn't necessarily a badge of love for Jesus either. Is it because I feel the love? Well, to be honest with you, I go long periods of time of not feeling that in-love feeling, not feeling that connection. And yet I know that I still love Jesus. How do I know I love Jesus? The only way that I can tell you is that my life right now looks much more like Jesus' life than it did 30 years ago. That's how I know that I love Jesus. There's that saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. To imitate Christ. The imitation of Christ is a classic of, of Christian theology, Thomas Kempis To imitate. I'm not equating myself with Jesus, of course. I'm not saying that, that that I'm like him. But what I am saying is that he's never far from my thoughts. And that I'm becoming more and more like him, but not in what I do. Not the things that I accomplish or do. I'm becoming more and more like him in How? I do what I do. And I'm feeling the difference. I know the difference. I think the hardest lesson that I've had to learn, and I'm still learning it, believe me, is that my purpose here as a human being has nothing to do with what I do, has nothing to do with what I can accomplish. That's not my purpose as a human being. You know, I still get depressed. I still get angry, I still get frustrated when things don't go according to plan, you know? And that's happening a lot lately. (laughs) A lot of things, not can you all relate? A lot of things not going according to plan. I know because I'm hearing from some of you, and I know how scared and frustrated and how absolutely maddening it is when the things that we plan for, the things that we think are part of our identity, who we are, aren't coming out the way that we imagine. And that's how I know that the stone is not yet smooth. That's how I know that I haven't learned this lesson yet, to really separate my purpose as a human being, the how of living life. How I live life has everything to do with my purpose, everything to do with how I know that I love Jesus, and not the things that I accomplish. That is so profound. That is such a fundamental difference in our outlook, because we identify with the things that we do, the things that we accomplish. And then we miss the fact that there is this deeper identification. And that's really what we're talking about. How do you know that you love anyone? It's when you identify with them. And so this idea of a of finding the right path in order to love... There's a great story. Have you ever heard about the appointment at Samara? this little story. It, it comes out of uh, ancient, Bagh, ancient uh, Iran, uh, the literature. But uh, the story goes that there's a merchant in ancient Baghdad, and he has a servant, and he sends the servant one morning into the marketplace to get some supplies, and too soon the, uh, the servant comes back just shaking and trembling and all white and scared, and he says, Master, Master, you know, I was in the marketplace and someone jostled me, and I turned around and I saw death. And death made a threatening gesture at me. So I ran back here. Please give me your fastest horse. I'm going to ride to Samara, and I'm going to hide there, and death will never find me. And so the the merchant gives him his fastest horse, and he... he, Toodles off to Samarra. And then the master goes, uh, the merchant goes to the market to see what's going on and he finds death there and he approaches death and he says, hey, you know, why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant? And death says, I didn't make a threatening gesture. That was just surprise to see him here in Baghdad this morning because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samarra. Have you ever heard that sometimes we meet death or meet our destiny on the road we take to avoid it? <laughs> you know? That stated in the negative is exactly what's going on in the positive with Jesus. We think we have to find the right road to Jesus, the right road, the right way of loving him. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus is on any and every road that we take. You cannot avoid him. It's not about the what, finding the right what it's about the how you know, living a a life that looks like the love that Jesus gave us and then any road is going to find him I mean, this is the fundamental difference we're talking about here. Can we get this across? Can we finally, finally understand that it works this way? Jesus, and we just talked about this last week, defines followership. He defines someone who really is his follower as someone who loves as he has loved. That new commandment that he gave at the Last Supper. You know, this new commandment I give you love each other as I have loved you. And they will, everyone will know that you are my followers by the way in which you love. And that was taken very seriously by the first Christians in those first three centuries. They were described by others historically in historical documents. Behold how they love one another. And yet, we've gotten off into all these other areas of specifics, either ritual or thought or theology, ways that we think we need to accomplish in order to prove our love, in order to know that we love. And yet, Jesus is making it so simple here. And yet, this love is so deep it's so radical that as soon as you think you got it figured out it's taking you someplace deeper and as soon as you think you've got Jesus figured out as soon as you put handles and edges around him he takes you someplace deeper as well and so it's always experienced in real time this love this this followership of Jesus is something that's always in motion and of course that's going to bring us right back to the baby Jesus again which is appropriate here at Christmas. My first love, the baby Jesus. How in the world would anyone look at this dirt poor baby in these circumstances, in a backwater town, in an unremarkable nation under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and see all that Jesus was and is in that infant? How is that even possible? How do you do that? Well, the Magi did. And here with a week to go before Christmas, I think it's really good to talk about the Magi or the Magi because they were the ones that were able to recognize Jesus In the last place that you would expect a king to be. The last place that you would expect a prophet to be. Let's take a look at what Matthew has to say. Because Matthew is the only one who has to say anything about the Magi, right? Matthew 2, starting right at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And that's it. That's all we know of the Magi. In the entire 66 books of the Bible or at least the 27 of the New Testament. That's it. In Matthew's Gospel, those few 12 verses are all we know. There's not very much detail there, not a whole heck of a lot to go on. We're going to have to read between the lines if we're going to figure out how these men were able to do what they did. So what do we know about them? Well, First, we don't know that they're kings. We call them We Three Kings, right? We sing that. It doesn't say that they're kings. In fact, most likely they were not kings. Absolutely not. They served the king. And there's not three. There's three gifts. But the number of magi has never been stated here. So this is tradition that has grown up around the story of the magi. But they're not kings. And there may have been different numbers of them. But what we do know, because we know something about the history of the area, that they were probably Babylonian or Persian priests, pre-Islamic priests, that would make them Zoroastrian in Persia at the time. They were magistrates. They were co-rulers with the king. They were advisors. They were astronomers. So that made them scientists as well. They're very powerful. Very powerful. They were advisors to the king. Daniel was probably a magi as a seer, as a prophet, as a co-regent with the king. And so if you're trying to get a handle on the magi in some (laughs) modern-day understanding, maybe think a combination of a cabinet secretary, uh, a scientist, a, a religious leader, right? And a prophet. And yet at the same time, they're all very wise. So how is it we know that they are wise? Well, there's a couple of things that are little details here that are going to tell us kind of all we need to know. First of all, they're willing to set out on a journey without a clear destination. Think about that for a second. They're being follow they're following a star. They spent their entire lives preparing for the truth, preparing for something watching the stars, learning their craft. And when they see a sign, they start following it without question, but they don't exactly know where it's leading. They know that it's leading them west, but they don't know where it's going. They are willing to take directions in real time. Kind of like your um, geo-satellite thingy. It's just telling you where to turn, but you don't exactly know where you're going. You're just following each turn. Hey, get this. They are willing to ask for directions. How many guys are willing to do that? They are willing to show the limits of their knowledge. That means they were humble. They didn't think that they had it all figured out. They were willing to look for truth in unexpected places. These are all hallmarks. I can't say that word. Hallmarks of the wisdom of the Magi, of what made them prepared To take a journey like this over dangerous territory because they were crossing the frontier between the Parthian and the Roman empires, very turbulent in the first century. They were willing to take this journey and see. They were willing to look ridiculous in the eyes of all of their peers if this didn't work out. All of this to be able to see through the poverty, the humility, and even the age of Jesus all the way to the truth that resided there. Humble, truthful, in themselves, so that they were prepared to see truth in a humble setting itself. They immersed themselves in this journey. They lived the journey. They breathed the journey. And they were able to see Jesus because they were already reflecting and living what Jesus is and was. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing if you think about it. If we want to see Jesus, we have to be already valuing and practicing the kind of love that Jesus practiced. Or we are going to miss him on the road that we take to find him. Twelve hundred years later, there's a man who is living the same kind of life that we have just described. Someone who called himself God's juggler, God's clown. Someone who saw life through this lens where he could call the sun his brother and the moon his sister and death his sister, brother sun and sister moon. And he saw life through this kind of playful lens, humble, humble, forced himself into poverty so that he could live close to the earth and be close to the people that he was serving. Francis of Assisi, in 1223, got permission from Pope Honorius III. Did you know there were three of them? <laughs> I didn't even know there was one. Pope Honorius III, to be able to set up a reenactment of the manger scene that Matthew describes. First time it was ever done, 1223, in a little town called Greccio. So he gets permission, and he sets it up. And it's life-size. There's a stable, there's a manger, and he has an ox, and he has a donkey in there with them, And that's it. None of the other cast of characters, just that much, right? And there was a contemporary of his, Thomas of Solano, who writes, he wrote several autobiographies of, uh, of Francis, and he knew him personally. But he was an eyewitness to this first nativity scene. And take a look at the way he describes this setting. He says, Francis would recall Christ's words through persistent meditation and bring to mind the deeds through the most penetrating consideration. The humility of the incarnation and the charity of the passion occupied his memory particularly to the extent that he wanted to think of hardly anything else. So this is just three years before his death. He died at 41 years old. Three years before, he wanted to reenact the nativity scene. And so the day of Christmas drew near the time of great rejoicing came. The brothers were called from their various places. Men and women of that neighborhood prepared with glad hearts according to their means, candles and torches to light up that night. The manger was prepared and the hay had been brought. The ox and the ass were led in. There simplicity was honored. Poverty was exalted. Humility was commended. And Greccio was made, as it were, a new Bethlehem. The night was lighted up like the day, and it delighted men and beast. The people came and were filled with new joy over the new mystery. The woods rang with the voices of the crowd, and the rocks made answer to their jubilation. The brothers sang, paying their debt of praise to the Lord, and the whole night resounded with their rejoicing. And when Francis came, finding all things prepared, he saw it and was glad. He is dressed in the vestments of the deacon and with full voice sings the Holy Gospel, a powerful voice, a pleasant voice, a clear voice, a musical voice, inviting all to the highest of gifts. Then he preaches to the people standing around him and pours forth sweet honey about the birth of the poor king and the poor city of Bethlehem. Moreover, burning with excessive love, he often calls Christ the babe from Bethlehem, saying the word Bethlehem in the manner of a bleeding sheep. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. See, you, 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 got, you can't miss these little details here. Because this is Francis. This is the essence of his character. He's not worried about looking ridiculous. He was the one who would stand on his head so he could see the world rightly. You know? And you got to picture that too with the robes and everything, you know? It's like, that's okay. It's a little strange. He wasn't afraid of these things. He exulted like David dancing in his underwear before the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it's, it's that kind of exultation, that kind of abandonment, that kind of immersion that allows these men and women to see beyond expectation, to see beyond what their outcomes or, or what they're working for so diligently to the truth that lies beyond, to the truth that is right here, right now in this moment, immediate, intimate. Not something distant, not something out there. He fills his mouth with sound, but even more with sweet affection. He seems to lick his lips whenever he uses the expressions Jesus or Babe from Bethlehem, tasting the word on his palate and savoring the sweetness of the word. Francis stands before the manger filled with heartfelt sighs and overcome with wondrous joy. You yeah, gotta love these details. An eyewitness standing there just taking it all in, so immersed himself, he notices every little bit and records it here. So here's Francis completely immersed in this, in this experience, in the drama of it, the reality of it, reflecting the love that was inherent in this moment, the in loveness of this moment. And so he gets lost in the sensory overload and the power of this moment. And he's brought to tears, considering it all, considering Jesus. Now we get no such details in the little 12 verses of the Magi. But can you imagine their reaction? After years of searching the heavens for truth, after taking this journey, after everything, to finally park yourself in front of everything that you seek, to be completely led in real time. They must have had the same reaction. I don't know if they bleded like sheep, but they had a reaction that was commensurate with the love, the release, the connection that they were feeling. Francis sees Jesus on the road that he's on, whatever road that is. He always meets Jesus there because his heart is prepared. His character is prepared to see Jesus as he is and not as he expects him to be. To me, this is so much what the Nativity is about. Jesus presenting in a way that we would never expect. There's a contemporary follower of St. Francis who, who's in a lay um part of the order. Her name is Elise Sagal, And she writes, the story of the incarnation is really our story. It's the exact meeting point of God and human beings. We so often think of God as some kind of remote power or superhuman energy that has somehow set this whole creation thing going and then stepped back to see what would happen. It's impossible for God to step back from anything God has chosen to be involved with. At the very first moment of creation, God freely decided to get involved with you and me and with all created beings. Absolutely everything God does, God does with free, unconditional, absolute, and irrevocable love. This is very hard for us to understand and accept because we of ourselves do not naturally love this way. Yet every Christmas, we celebrate that God came among us as one of us so we could love like God and be loving like God, and share God's own life forever. Francis of Assisi was profoundly moved as he contemplated God's coming among us as a human being in Christ Jesus. This reality filled him with awe. He understood that we human beings are essentially poor, that of ourselves, we actually are nothing. Everything we are and have been given to us by God in love. We are totally dependent on the God who lovingly and freely created us and who holds us in being. When Francis talked about poverty, this is what he was talking about, the recognition of what we are before God. When he thought about this little newborn baby lying in utterly poor circumstances, son of an equally poor mother, it moved Francis to tears. That this little human being could be a full manifestation of the God of all creation astounded him and wakened in him the most ardent and grateful love. It made him want to laugh and sing and shout and weep. So that is exactly what he did. Francis was a man who really expressed his emotions. For him, the Gospels came alive and were made present in highly charged dramatic action. Word and deed were as one. To know the story was to become a participant in it, to play a role in it to live it in such a way that its power became irresistible to others that's it that's how we know we love when we are immersed in the story of love when our lives reflect that love when people are saying about us behold how they love one another this is the connection to be able to see past what we think is supposed to be, to what really is. And there's one last story that has become a tradition for me to read. I just love the story, and I can almost never get all the way through it, but let me see what I can do. It's called Trouble at the Inn. For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are talked about in a certain little town in the Midwest, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally's performance in one annual production of the Nativity play has slipped into the realm of legend. But the old-timers who were in the audience that night never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year and in the second grade, though he should have been in the fourth. Most people in town knew that he had difficulty in keeping up. He was big and clumsy, slow in movement and mind. Still, Wally was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he, though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation if the uncoordinated Wally was asked to play ball with them. Most often they'd find a way to keep him off the field, but Wally would hang around anyway, not sulking, just hoping. He was always a helpful boy, a willing and smiling one, and the natural protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. Sometimes if the older boys chased the younger ones away, it would always be Wally who'd say, Can't they stay? They're no bother. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd with a flute in the Christmas pageant that year, but the play's director, Miss Lombard, assigned to him a more important role. After all she reasoned, the innkeeper did not have too many lines, and Wally's size would make his refusal to lodging to Joseph more forceful. "'And so it happened that the usual large partisan audience "'gathered in the town's yuletide extravaganza "'of the staffs and the craches of beards, crowns, halos, "'and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. "'No one on stage or off was more caught up "'in the magic of the night than Wallace Perling. "'They said later that he stood in the wings "'and watched the performance with such fascination "'that from time to time Miss Lombard had to make sure "'he didn't wander on stage before his cue.' Then the time came when Joseph appeared, slowly, tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into the painted backdrop. Wally, the innkeeper, was there waiting. What do you want, Wally said, swinging the door open with a brusque gesture. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead but spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. Sir, we have looked everywhere in vain. We have traveled far and are very weary. There is no room in the inn for you, while they looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper, this is my wife, Mary. She is heavy with child and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her? She is so tired. Now for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. With that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone, the prompter whispered from the wings. No, Wally repeated automatically, be gone. Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and Mary laid her head upon his shoulder, and the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however, while he stood there in the doorway watching the forlorn couple. His mouth was open, his brow creased with concern, his eyes unmistakably filling with tears. Don't go, Joseph, Wally cried out. Bring Mary back! And Wallace Perling's face grew into a bright smile. You can have my room. <laughs> Some people in town thought that the pageant had been ruined. Yet there were others, many others, who considered it the most Christmas of all Christmas pageants they had ever seen. <sighs> Does it take someone who doesn't have all their faculties to be the one who can get lost in a story like this? Can we do that too? Can we make the conscious decision to set aside everything that we think we know, everything that we expect, all the outcomes that we're striving so hard to accomplish and just get immersed in this moment and forget our lines and say something really inappropriate and not worry about looking ridiculous and just reflect the love that has been so freely offered to us. If we want to recognize Jesus, if we want to know that we love Jesus, that's how we do it. When we get lost, like Wally did, like Francis did, like the Magi did, like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds did, think about all of them prepared by life, prepared by character, to see past the surface of things to the truth that lay beyond. That's our heritage. That's who we are as followers of Jesus. We just have to lie in it, allow ourselves to lean into it, and go into that place. Jesus says we can do it. I believe him. Not easy, but we can do it. And this Christmas is as good a time as any to start. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Just thank you for our scriptures, for the tiny details that have been recorded and preserved and passed down through millennia to speak to us here now. And show us another way of living our lives. Thank you for the men and women who found you along the way and stood up and wrote what they wrote and lived what they lived and become models for us as well. And thanks for the people in this room, the people around us that are doing the same thing. All of this, everything that you've given to us, conspiring to allow us to follow Jesus. Father, we're grateful. Take us deeper this Christmas. Let this Christmas be the the message, the symbol, the touchstone, and the reality for us to move into a new place with you, a new relationship with you and each other. Thank you for everything that you do, Lord. Never let us forget. We can only do any of this in return because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's all stand.